and 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 for those of us joining in on Facebook Live, you are if you are looking for forgiveness and atonement in Jewish tradition, theological and philosophical perspectives with Rabbi Shlomo Zakir, welcome. Source sheets will be posted in the chat, both on Zoom and on Facebook Live. If feel feel free to open them up and follow along. If you have any questions, you are welcome to drop them in the chat again on both Facebook or on or on Zoom, and and I will make and I will make sure to. Bring them to raise um, Rabbi Zuckier's attention at stopping points. If you are following on Zoom and you have a question, again, you're welcome to drop in the chat or raise your hand or wait for a question pause. And with that, Rabbi Zuckier, good evening. All right. Yeah, so let's get started. Great. And uh, um, I guess we're, we're, it's already Erev Yom Kippur, at least where I am. Uh, so uh, I guess this is very much in the spirit of the day. And this, uh, this, uh, we're going to be building on what we did in the previous two sessions, but also moving in a different direction. So today, our focus is going to be more squarely on some of the philosophical questions of what divine forgiveness, also known as atonement, and, and all the other synonyms. Um, at least, at least we'll be considering those possibilities. How how exactly that works philosophically, and tying that in to some of what we've seen within uh, within the sources of Jewish tradition. So, um, right, there's not that much philosophical literature on this uh, within a Jewish context. Um, people are usually writing either generally or within other faith traditions. So here we're trying to, uh, to make use of the philosophical material that's out there and, uh, and see how it ties into uh, some of the Jewish materials, again, which we've seen the last two sessions. So I think it's, you know, it fits sort of well. The first two sessions were more on the philological side. We, have a, we had a break for Rosh Hashanah. And uh, now we're moving more, uh, more squarely to the philosophy side of things. Um, and uh, okay, so let's jump in to the source sheet. And again, uh, yeah, let's jump into the source sheet. Um, hopefully this works. And let's see, hopefully I can still see everyone. One moment here. Peter's giving me a little bit of a hard time here. Hold on a second. I assume this the sh uh, shared screen worked for all of you, but somehow I lost people. Here you are. Now you now you showed up, and now we can trying to work off of two screens here. Um, so uh, hopefully, I'll be able to see both you and the. Uh, and the uh, the sources, and hopefully you'll be able to see me. And I won't be well. You know, I'll probably be looking up up in the air, not like not looking for anything other than the sources that are up here. So okay, so yeah, so we're on. So let's jump in. We'll start just by uh, by you know reviewing some classical sources that indicate that God forgives in Jewish tradition. No no chidushim here, just to start with. So. Uh, we'll start with a, a pasuk in the context of karbanos. Right, this is a karban chatas, chatas yachid, and you do the same process that you do to a big a par chatas. You do to the smaller sheep chatas. The nislachlehem, the kohen does kapara. We spoke previously about what, what exactly kapara means, right? Uh, putting blood on the mizbeach. We we'll get back to that in a bit. Vinislachlehem, and they. Um, right, they, the, I, 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 correction, this is not a carbon yachid, this is a car, uh, this is on behalf of 
the whole community, they are forgiven. Right? So we see God forgives in the context of Karbanos, not controversial, it's very straightforward. Um, in a narrative context and uh, tying into Yugi Momidos, um, right? Uh, uh, Moshe is, is uh, reciting the Yugi Momidos, Hashem, Erechapayim, Rav Chesed, Nosei, Mamafasha, Nakil, Yenakeh, etc., etc. And uh, the, the line we know from Slichos, Slach, Nala, Avona, Azek, Yigodel, Chastecha, please uh, forgive or pardon this nation according to your great Chesed. Hashem uh, pardons, forgives the Jewish people. So this is something that happens again and again. Not only does it happen in Tanakh, it's in our davening too, both our daily davening, or something like that, depending on your exact text. We praise Hashem, or we, we, we refer to Hashem as the one who, who forgives greatly, and, and we ask Hashem to forgive us on a daily basis in Shmon Esrei, and then again, a source we've seen on Yom Kippur, especially, Israel, you're the great partner or great forgiver of Israel. We said, or we spoke about the difference between slicha and mechila. We'll get back to that as well. So you're the great mochalan, you're the great mochel, the great forgiver. And then the bracha that we close, Mar of Yom Kippur. But part of, part of the way we describe Hashem on this Yom Kippur davening is mochel v'soleach l'avonoseinu, right? The, the, the king, Hashem, the king who forgives and pardons our sins and the sins of the whole Jewish people, ma'avir Hashem takes away our guilt every year on Yom Kippur. So, uh, right, it's uncontroversial within Jewish tradition that Hashem forgives and pardons. However, uh, when we, when we uh, think about the philosophical issue, it's a lot less simple. And um, we'll start, I mean, there's a whole literature uh, critiquing and, uh, you know, sort of uh, taking on the possibility that God could forgive. We're going to just start with, uh, you know, a few of the arguments that are made by this uh, scholar, uh, Minas, that's uh, cited here by Drabkin, a nice, a nice uh, short summary here. Um, but we'll look at a few of the main arguments, and then we're going to focus on the views of the other side, the views that think that God can forgive, that I think is more fruitful for understanding the Jewish tradition. But uh, first, we should get a sense of some of these critiques, some of the potential philosophical issues with God forgiving, uh, before we look at different models, different approaches to how we might overcome that. So um, again, there's three kinds of forgiveness. And there, there's more than three. There's all these models out there. We'll see some of them ourselves. But let's, for argument's sake, right? There's three kinds of forgiveness. First, forgiveness involving the reversal of a moral judgment, right? I see someone doing something, I think what this person is doing is wrong, they're a bad person. And uh, when I forgive them, I take that away, I no longer think they're a bad person, right? My, my, my moral judgment shifts. That's one form of forgiveness. Alternatively, forgiveness is uh, the remitting of an assigned punishment, right? Let's say uh, I'm, I'm, the, uh, you know, I'm the king and someone, whatever it is, someone uh, litters. So I say, okay, you are sentenced to a year in jail. And then for whatever reason, they have extenuating circumstances, I get in a better mood. I can then say, you are hereby forgiven. You're not gonna go to jail for a year, right? So that would be uh, remitting a punishment. And then third, forgiveness involving the giving up of a resentment, right? Uh, that's more emotional, an emotional form of, uh, right? So the first one is judgment. You undo a judgment, uh, you reverse a judgment. The second is you undo a punishment. And the third one is you undo resentment, just the emotion, right? I you did something to me, I resent that. Well, now I forgive you. I will take back 
my resentment. The problem with that, Minas argues, is God does not reverse judgments, for his judgments are never wrong, right? So if God's, if you do something wrong, you sin against God, God then says you're, you know, thinks you're a bad person, then what's going to happen later? You'll, whatever, you'll do tshuva or something, and then God will say, okay, you're not a bad person. Well, was God wrong in the first place, or is God wrong now? Because either way, if God changes God's mind, um, right, no, having known the whole, the, you know, the whole, the whole thing in advance, what would happen? So either God thinks you're a good person and is right throughout, or God thinks you're a bad person throughout and is right, but it would be impossible for a perfect God to first think you're a bad person, then think you're a good person, and remain perfect, right? Because he made a mistake either the first time or the second time. So God can't forgive if forgiveness is about reversing a moral judgment. Likewise, God never remits an assigned punishment, for he would never have assigned the punishment unless it were the right thing to do, right? Let's say a person, uh, whatever it is, eats, uh, eats a chazer or whatever, right? And then, so, uh, right, uh, and it break, breaks whatever, whatever halacha, and then, so there's some a punishment, let's say, let's give, uh, there's some punishment that involves kares, right? You, you sacrifice your children to molech, let's say, and you're chayv kares for that. So, uh, so let's say somehow you can undo that, right? Maybe through by getting malkos, you can undo that. Well, how would that work, right? God first decides you're chayv kares, and then you do tshuva, and then God decides you're not chayv kares. He removes that punishment. Well, was, was God right to impose the punishment in the first place, or was God right to remit the punishment, um, right? What, what could possibly change? In terms of people, Right. So you might say if a king is imposing a punishment. So, uh, you know, it turns out in the end that he was wrong at the beginning. Right. He wanted to punish someone. It turns out they're extenuating circumstances. They're very sorry. The king was wrong in the first place and correct. And, and you know, when he changed his mind to forgive. But for God, that doesn't work. Right. How can God uh, assign a punishment and then un undo it? Right. And then just some details in his omniscience. God will be able to foreknow the repentance of the agent. He need not make, not make and could not make a judgment about the character that didn't take repentance into account, right? God should have known in advance this person will repent. Then decide at the beginning, are they deserving of punishment or not? But don't decide they're deserving of punishment and then remove that, forgiving them. That would be impossible for a perfect God. So that's a second, that's the second approach and why that doesn't work. And now the third approach, um, if forgiveness is an emotion of resentment, so as for God giving up resentment, that's also impossible. How could God harbor a resentment, right? Can God resent people? Take, right, like you resent someone if you take something personal, right? It's not that something's objectively wrong, but you know, you, I don't know, if you, uh, let's say you, uh, you have bad manners in my house. Well, I don't really care that much about people having bad manners in other people's houses, but if you eat with your mouth open in my house, I resent that personally. I take it personally. God doesn't work like that. Why would God take things personally? So if, if forgiveness is, un is giving up some resent resentment you held, God would never be able to do that because God would never resent in the first place. And Minas concludes that God is incapable of forgiving. Right? So this is a few different, uh, you know, like a, a, a multi-dimensional critique, but the same, the direction is similar, right? The type of thing that forgiveness is um, either involves a change in, in a way that God wouldn't change or uh, involves some, you know, either a mistake in the first place or, or a mistake or something unsavory, uh, either in the first, in the first uh, you know, at the beginning or in the final account, and God is incapable of, of uh, doing these things if God is perfect. So these are, this is the critique, again, it's just a short form, there's a lot more literature on this, but we're going to use this as a jumping off point to consider six different models of divine atonement or forgiveness or whatever term you want to use. I'm going to use these interchangeably. We'll see the different models, maybe some will fit better with some terms than others, but at least thinking generally about forgiveness 
uh, and and the broader scope of of mechila uh, slicha and kapara, um, what uh, what can work and what can't work. That's that's what we're going to jump into now. And before we do that, just any questions or or thoughts uh, on what we've done, or are people ready to uh, to jump in? Okay, don't see any hands. So let's, uh, unless I missed something, let's go right, let's go right to it. So there's a whole series of articles by uh, Brandon Warmke, uh, who's a philosopher. I've actually had a chance to meet him at conferences, wonderful guy. And um, so he has two articles where he, he lays out, um, he lays out uh, what is divine forgiveness. There's four different models of divine forgiveness that he analyzes. Uh, in, in these two articles. And we're going to look at, you know, pieces uh, of them and try to flesh it out and, and try to see how they tie in with different Jewish accounts. So we're going to start with the emotion theory of divine forgiveness, which we saw before. We saw a version of it, which is that uh, forgiveness is, is giving up a resentment, right? If I resent something someone does, then they apologize. Then I say, okay, you know what? You're forgiven. I no longer resent it. So the critique is, and right, they're going to respond to critiques here. According to an emotion theory of divine forgiveness, God's forgiveness involves an emotional change. We do something wrong. God feels a negative emotion towards us. Then God forgives us by eliminating that negative emotion, maybe also taking up a positive emotion. And one of the critiques that we just saw is why would God have these negative emotions in the first place, like resentment? Or can, does God have emotions at all? But that's a big question. Obviously, if you take this approach, you have to assume that God can have emotions. Um, but um, but you, even if God has emotions, you might think that God doesn't have base emotions like resentment. So one way around that they say, you don't need to think that God gives up resentment to adopt the emotion theory of divine forgiveness. There are other possibilities too. God might give up sadness, disappointment, or hurt feelings, right? Let's say God is sad when, uh, when a person sins. And then the person does tshuva and then, uh, and then Hashem is happy or is no longer sad, right? So that wouldn't have the problem that we saw about how could God ever resent any, right? Why would God take things personally? That's one way around that. And again, there are other options uh, too. So, but there is a problem with this here. Um, again, and now Ann Minnis, the same article uh, being referred back to, um, but this is a bit, a bit more detailed. So the argument is that if your resentment goes away, it either fades away or stops immediately. But again, this involves change. And how would there be, how would there be change uh, in this case? That was objection number one. And objection number two is why would God ever take it personally? And they'll say, they say there's three different ways around this. Um, again, one would be that, um, um, right, that, that resentment doesn't have to involve a feeling of personal injury. It doesn't need to be like, oh no, you hurt my feelings, I resent it. Someone can resent something, uh, uh, you know, in someone else for more objective reasons, for more proper reasons, right? You broke the Torah, the Torah is an important thing, that I resent that fact, uh, and if you do tshuva, then, then uh, you know, then we can forgive you and undo that. So that's one way around it, uh, that maybe resentment isn't, uh, isn't subject to this critique of uh, being a, a base instinct that's based on uh, you know, taking things personally. A second approach would be, uh, would, would reject the argument that, uh, that this is unbefitting of God, right? Maybe taking things personally is not a moral failing. Maybe there's good reason to take things personally. Again, you can go into the details of, you know, of uh, emotion theory. Maybe sometimes it's right to take something personally, or at least even if it's wrong for people to take things personally, maybe for a God, it's not, Hard to know, hard to sometimes uh, reason between people and divine emotions. That's the second approach. And then a third approach is just to say that there's, there's no resentment here at all, right? God's forgiveness could be an emotional change through other means, 
um, right, uh, Drabkin, whose article we cited before, he has a suggestion that God pivots from suffering to rejoicing, right? God is in pain when we sin, and when we, we repent, God is then happy. So that's a form of forgiveness because it's a shift in emotion. It might be different than most human forgiveness, which is a shift from resentment to non-resentment, uh, but this is a different shift in emotion that could also work. But they have some other issues. Number one is God's impassibility, right? The idea that God can't have, uh, can't suffer or can't have reactive emotions, which again, there's different views on this. Um, I'd say probably the standard Jewish view is, is or at least the Maimonidean view is in, that God is impassable. You can't really hurt God. You can't cause God, God to have reactive emotions. So then, you know, that would be a problem for this, right? Even to say God is sad, you might reject that. Right? What does it mean God's sad? Um, God doesn't get sad, right? That would be a pretty fatal flaw with this approach if you took that uh, angle. Um, or, um, right, or another problem is if forgiving is a way of saying, like, I give up any vindictiveness, any hatred, any bitterness. So God wouldn't need to do that because God doesn't, doesn't hold those negative uh, feelings ever. So there would be no need to give it up. That's another problem. I think the best critique they present is this, which is emotion theories of, of forgiveness fail to capture the thought that divine forgiveness affects us, right? On Yom Kippur, we want Hashem to be soleach and mochel us. And if the, if the main factor of slicha and mechila and kapara is just that there's some shift in God's mind in terms of God's emotions, like why are we so invested in it? Right? We might care that God is no longer angry because of our wrongdoing, but is that all there is to God forgiving us, like changing God's feeling? No, it seems natural to think of God's forgiveness as affecting a change in our status or our standing in relationship to God, the relational angle, right? That somehow when I'm forgiven by God, we're somehow closer, right? We have a better relationship than we did previously. That seems to be what people think of uh, when they think about forgiveness. And this emotional approach doesn't really include that in any way. So that, that's, I think that's really the, the strongest critique uh, that's here. Now, just to, uh, just to give an example of uh, where there seems to be an association between, you know, people sinning, God getting angry and having some emotional response and then forgiveness and, and giving up that anger. I think that comes out, I mean, there's many psukim that one could look at, but I think one place where that comes out is uh, in some psukim here. Uh, actually, recent, recent Parsha, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right, uh, this is uh, Moshe speaking, right? Lest there be someone among you, um, whose heart is turning away from God, uh, worshiping other uh, other gods, um, right? That's some like poisonous uh, root. And then when he hears all these curses, say, nah, I'm fine. I don't need to. I don't need to follow the Torah, right? I don't, it doesn't matter. So what will happen? God will not forgive him. Rather, God will get angry at him. And impose all of these curses on him. So there's a clear, you know, a clear, uh, like a counterpoint here. If God is not forgiving someone, God is rather angry at them, right? God resents what they're doing. So if you read this, these psukim literally, this is the resentment account uh, of forgiveness, right? Usually if you were forgiven, you would, God would give up his yeshan uh, af Hashem, God's anger, so and God's jealousy. But it doesn't really mean jealousy, it means more resentment. God would give up that, that, uh, right, anger and passion rage, as they translated here, but God does not forgive you, so he doesn't give it up, but it, there it seems to have that correlation. Again, you know, if you're a Maimonidean, you don't read that literally, uh, because what does it mean God gets angry? It doesn't mean God's actually angry, 
but uh, but if you take that those psukim literally, you have your you have an emotional account of uh, of forgiveness here by negation, of course. And there are many other psukim you could draw. I just wanted to give one example. Any questions or thoughts on that? All right, so we'll move to the second model of forgiveness, which is forbearing punishment. And again, we saw this mentioned before as well, that you should be punished. You did something wrong, you should get punished, but I'll forgive you so you don't get punished. In this case, God. All right, so this is, again, these, these approaches apply not only to divine forgiveness, but to forgiveness in general in the philosophical literature. So another approach to forgiveness or divine forgiveness for our purposes, God forgives by forbearing punishment. Uh, whereas emotion theories claim that God forgives by undergoing an emotional change, here, God forbids, remits or forbears the deserved punishment. Now, there's two differences here. One, one way, there's two ways of saying this. One way is to say that if God forgives us, God won't therefore punish us afterwards, right? That's one thing. But there's a different, uh, a different argument, a subtly different argument, which is that forgiveness by definition means that God gives up the, uh, the possibility of punishment, right? It could be that forgiveness always leads to not being punished. That's not the same thing as saying that forgiveness means not being punished. That's like the essential definition of it. So we're gonna work with, uh, as uh, Wormke does, the essential definition of punishment will be, for these purposes, will be that God forbear, sorry, the essential definition of forgiveness will be that God forbears punishment. God chooses not to punish. That's what happens when God forgives. So, um, right, so on this view, our wrongs condemn us to God's just punishment, right? From a Jewish perspective, this works very well. The article is like saying, well, you know, why would God punish someone? What sort of things do you have to do? There's a very strong account of this in Jewish tradition, of course. So you, you sin, you're condemned to punishment. When God forgives, God commutes the sentence, right? God forbears a deserved punishment and uh, right, it's to decide not to punish someone. And that's an exercise of agency, number one, right? God sort of has this decision. I will not punish this person despite the fact that they deserve it based on what they did or something like that, number one. Number two, then God does not uh, punish them going forward. So there's a lot of questions. One question is, can a perfectly just God forbear punishment? Right. If someone did something and deserves to be punished, so if God is perfectly just, how can God say like, well, uh, you did, you know, you now no longer will get punished. Shouldn't it be the right thing to do for the person to be punished? Wouldn't it be unjust for the person not to get punished? Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's sort of one one thing that, that they flag here. Um, they note there's some, or, or work, you know, there's some preferences to this uh, punishment forbearance approach as opposed to the emotion theory. Why? Because the emotion theories don't take into account um, how divine forgiveness changes our relationship with God. Here it does talk at least a little bit our, about our relationship with God, right? Because we're not getting punished, right? Punishment is one mode of communication between God and people. And if you no longer will be punished, that, that's a shift in the relationship, although it won't be as relational as some other examples. We'll see that more in a bit. Uh, and here's, um, yeah. Fine. And there's another issue of maybe forbearing punishment and forgiveness aren't the same. Uh, and they give some example of, you know, if you punish your kid for breaking the rules, you might say, well, I forgive you, but I'm still going to make sure that you get the punishment. I'm still going to carry out the punishment. Theoretically, that would make sense. Um, but uh, if this definition is true, then it wouldn't make sense. That's one issue. And then another issue possibly is that it, there's a conflation between forgiveness and a pardon, right? Pardons, I sin against whoever and then some other party can pardon me, at least in some cases. Whereas here, it's presumably the, the wronged party that is the one who forgives. 
there are a couple of, of issues with the punishment forbearance theory. Also, I would add in an interpersonal context, there isn't always punishment, right? I can forgive someone, certainly you know, outside of the, the divine context. If someone wrongs me, I can forgive them, even if there was no presumption that I would punish them in the first place, right? Let's say I have no power over them at all. I can't punish them, um, right? And they have no interest in my social company, so I can't punish them by ignoring them either. Um, still, I can forgive them, presumably. It doesn't seem to be wrong. It wouldn't be wrong to say I can forgive someone, even if I hadn't had the capacity to punish them before. So I think that's another weakness with that, uh, with the term. Um, here's a, a pasuk or a series of sukkim that seem to connect uh, forgiveness to forbearing punishment, again, will involve the yudgimomidos, the 13 divine attributes, including mercy. So there we go again with the conflating of mercy and forgiveness. But um, um, right, uh, this is again Moshe praying to God. Um, and he says, you know, Egypt will hear that you took this nation out of Egypt, but then uh, then you ended up destroying them. That would be really bad, right? You destroy them after taking them out. Everyone will say, you can't take them into the land. So therefore, right, that's sort of a side reason. But then Moshe says, have mercy, right, um, uh, right, to, for you to kill, for you to kill the nation and not bring them into Israel, let them die in the desert. That would be bad. Have mercy on them. He quotes the 13 attributes of mercy and the like. And he says, Please forgive this sin. What does it mean to forgive the sin? In context, it's very clear. Forgive the sin and don't block them from entering Eretz Israel. Let them enter the land of Israel instead of dying in the desert, right? Remit the punishment of dying in the desert rather than entering the land of Israel. That's what forgiveness would mean. So it, it seems pretty clear from context here that we're taking a punishment remittance uh, approach to, to forgiveness. At least that is what it sounds like here, right? Saying forgive them, presumably that means, uh, and don't do the thing you were just threatening to do, namely punishing them. So that's our, that's our second model of forgiveness, remitting punishment. And now we'll move to a third approach, which is much more uh, interpersonal interactive, namely uh, reconciliation. Right, reconciliation to when two parties get back together, in this case, the divine party and the human party when the human sins. So this one, right, the two approaches we saw before were, are not particularly relational. Remitting punishment is more relational than uh, an emotion theory, but neither of them are, are, are too interpersonal or too relational, whereas the idea of reconciliation is very, uh, very uh, much relational, right? And the, the idea would be like this. When we wrong someone, let's say in a human relationship, trust is lost, friendly relations are withdrawn, alienation occurs, and something similar happens when we, uh, you know, when we sin against God, we alienate God in a, in a way, right? That deteriorates the relationship, we're separated from God, and then God forgives us by restoring the relationship it's God's prerogative, and it has a direct consequence on our relationship with God. That's the basic account of reconciliation. And um, uh, yeah, so so one way of, of one approach to this is that God won't just do it unilaterally. There needs to be a first step coming from the person, right? First, the wrongdoer apologizes, repents, asks for forgiveness, Davin's on Yom Kippur, whatever it is, and then uh, God responds by reconciling. But God wouldn't do that on His own. There's a question, right? They, they, they sort of think about whether that makes sense or not. Uh, in human context, it's not true that forgiveness is always a response to an entreaty by the other party. Sometimes you just forgive the person before they, before they uh, ask for it. So maybe it's not the same. Maybe it wouldn't be the same here, or maybe it is. 
sort of left that a little open. Um, and um, uh, yeah, now there's a reason to distinguish, as many philosophers do, to distinguish forgiveness from reconciliation, um, because you might say that someone is open to reconciling with the person without forgiving the deed, right? Like, let's say two people have, uh, you know, they, they work together and, uh, you know, one of them wrongs the other one, the other one really resents it and is not willing, is not going to uh, forgive what they did. They really are upset about it, yet they need to have a working relationship, so they make it work, right? So they reconcile, at least in practice, but they just are not willing to forgive what the person did, right? So would you say that can't be reconciled? They can't be reconciled because he didn't forgive what he did. No, it's presumably it's possible to separate between the two. So that would be a problem for this theory. If it's possible to reconcile without forgiving, um, that would undermine the idea that the definition of forgiveness is reconciliation. But again, then you may say, well, you're not fully reconciled if uh, if you don't if you don't uh, give up on on what they did. Um, Fine. And alternatively, you might say you can forgive someone without reconciling, right? Like, uh, I don't know, um, maybe even Yom Kippur is a good example, right? You go around, this, the practice is often to go around asking for mechila, right? Do you forgive me? So you ask the person, do you forgive me? They'll say yes, and maybe they'll even mean it. Yeah, I forgive you, whatever. But uh, you're not really reconciled. You still are somewhat alienated from the person because of what happened. So it, it seems possible conceptually to separate between reconciliation and forgiveness, which might be a reason. Uh, a reason to go against this. Let's just take a look at one source and then I'll, I'll get to Jonathan's question. Um, so Tosefta and Shkalim, there's many other examples like this, but it talks about how one of the functions of Karbanos is Karbanos atzibar miratzin umechaprin ben Yisrael right? They, miratzin means to appease or to reconcile umechaprim and to atone uh, between Israel and their father in heaven. We know atonement, forgiveness are closely associated. So, uh, right, what does it mean to forgive? Maybe what it means is miratzin. It means reconciliation uh, between people and God. Maybe that's the sort of the definition, not just that the two words appear here together, but it's sort of the definition of atonement. Atonement is one, or forgiveness is one, one gets reconciled with God, uh, resolving the, you know, the, the uh, distance and alienation of their sin. So that's a third account. Now, Jonathan asks, is this what is reflected in overturning the evil of the decree, right? Uh, the idea of, let's say, kira roa gizardinator, right? God, please rip up our evil decree. Um, so you're asking, is this what's reflected in John? What, what, what's the this? Oh, going back to the second theory. Let's see. So the second theory, yeah, I think that works very well, right? The gizardinenu, right? We ask Hashem to rip up the evil decree, right? Like Bar talks about this. Um, that uh, when we actually saw this, I think we saw this last time, the idea of, uh, of nichtam avonai, nichtam avonai, right? Your sins can be sealed, can be, uh, God can write the decree, God can even seal the decree, but it can still get ripped up. Um, so we ask, rip up our evil decree, rip up the decree saying you will be punished in this and that way. So yeah, that would certainly be the second, that would fit very well with the second account, that forgiveness, you're asking for forgiveness, namely, you're asking for uh, the remittance of punishment, rip up the decree. Yeah, that would be a great a great source. Um, so if we if we add a source to the sheet, that would be that would be a great one to add. Any other questions or uh, or thoughts on any of the first three models of forgiveness that we've seen? All right. So let's move to number four. 
which is, and maybe, maybe we'll have a vote at the end. So I'll just like try to track in your mind which of these models seem more, more uh, a better conceptual fit for forgiveness and have uh, fewer problems, um, either in general or within Jewish tradition. I can believe that open. Um, forgiving debt. So this is a fourth one. Or what does it mean to forgive? And we discussed this last time. We'll see some of the sources will reappear here. That just like you can forgive debt, someone owes you money, you can say, you know what? You know, uh, you have extenuating circumstances. I'll forgive the debt. I'm not going to collect it. Go uh, do your thing. Go, uh, you know, live, uh, live long and prosper. Um, you can also forgive. You can also forgive not just debt, but also when someone wrongs you. So, right, this is not uncommon. They have all these examples. Offending you, uh, a man, as it were, incurs a debt. And that's what we talk about, owing recompense, reparation and an apology, right? You owe me an apology. What do you mean you owe me? We use a monetary metaphor, right? When you forgive someone, you readjust the relationship to one of equality, meaning your, your like uh, wrong, your right and wrong bank account resets to zero when you forgive someone. Or when one person harms or transgresses another, this effectively creates an interpersonal debt. Forgiveness involves the cancellation of the debt by the person who's been hurt, hurt or wronged. And so these, these comparisons exist not only in personal context, but also in theological contexts. Um, so maybe divine forgiveness can fruitfully be understood as a kind of debt cancellation. So this involves a metaphor, of course, right? We're saying just like you wrong someone that's, uh, they need to be forgiven. You also, if you have a debt that's forgiven, that's the same thing. So what does it mean to have moral debt? And then what does it mean that forgiveness is the cancellation of moral debt? So actually here, there's a third article, believe it or not, by uh, Wormke on focusing on the economic model of forgiveness. I thought he laid it out very nicely here, which is, um, right, let's look at two cases. You have a vase or a vase, depending, maybe both. And so you're at a dinner party, uh, you trip, you fall, you knock over and smash someone's vase. And uh, now they realize you owe them for the vase. They say, oh, you don't have to pay me for it. Don't worry about it, right? Even though by right, you know, uh, I don't know, Hilfos, uh, you know, Baba Kama terms, they'd be high if they damage your thing, they have to pay for it, but they say, don't worry about it, you're off the hook. I'll forgive, uh, I'll forgive, the, you know, the debt, the monetary debt for breaking the vase. Now, second case is deception. Julia deceives Otto, causing him to fail to pick up his daughter at school. Otto realizes Julia has wronged him, but tells her, Julia, I forgive you for deceiving me, right? Let's say she did a practical joke. He ended up not picking up his daughter. She was very upset. So here too, he says he forgives her. So the idea is that uh, both of these cases have the same structure, right? An economic debt cancellation, there's first an economic debt incurring event, breaking the vase, that's stage one. Stage two is the state of being economically obligated, right? After you break the vase, you owe the person money. That's an economic state that exists. And then third is the economic debt forgiving event, right? You say, don't worry about it. Uh, I got the, the vase covered, you don't need to pay me. The 50 bucks to replace it, right? So that's the three stages. And the same exact thing in the case of moral forgiveness. First, there's a moral debt incurring event, right? You deceive someone you, and thereby hurt them. Then they're in a state of moral obligation, right? They're in moral debt to you. And then you forgive them, you forgive the moral debt in that case. You say, oh, don't worry about it, not a big deal. And then the person doesn't need to apologize, right? Because you said, forgiven, mutterlach, mutterlach. And uh, right, then they can't ask for apologies or, or all the things. So they basically have the same, the same uh, structure. And um, so now the question is what happens, what exactly does one do that forgives uh, a wrongdoer by forgiving the debt? And, uh, and there's two things that happen, Wormke suggests. First, um, 
uh, right? First, by forgiving the debt, um, that releases various obligations, right? Um, so if you say you're forgiven for having broken the vase, now I, I'm not, I'm releasing you from various obligations, financial or in the moral case, moral obligations. So that's number one. Um, uh, right, and that's, that's sort of the, the, essential, uh, the essential piece of it. Um, and uh, right, and that's why forgiveness would be like canceling debt. It can involve the release of a special kind of obligation that the wrongdoer has uh, to the victim. Right. And whether they owe uh, an apology or remorse or penance or something like that, that can be that obligation can be undone uh, by by the act of forgiving. Now back to divine forgiveness. Now that we have the model down, um, so there's a famous philosopher uh, Swin, Richard Swinburne has this idea of of a uh, a debt forgiveness model that really has a couple of different uh, stages to it. Right. So we do something wrong. We acquire guilt. We have an obligation to do what we can to remove the guilt. So he says that's like a debtor who owes money, right? And there's an obligation to do something like repaying, but two things need to happen. Number one, the wrongdoer must atone for the wrong act. And number two, the victim must forgive him, meaning it needs to come from both sides, right? This is similar to what we saw before in the other context of initiating the reconciliation. You first need here, we're not talking about reconciliation, we're talking about debt, but first the party who did the wrong needs to uh, somehow atone for their act, needs to try to fix it. Then the other side, namely God, can forgive them. Um, and, and notice the structure, and I, I think this is intentional, um, fits with like classical biblical atonement, right? You bring a carbon, and there's the atonement, and then there's forgiveness. I, I assume uh, that's the sort of thing that, that uh, Swinburne had in mind, maybe not by Ikra, but the idea of atonement being, you know, what leads to forgiveness, uh, right? It's two sides of the same coin. The question is, is this really necessary? Meaning, could God forgive without an act of atonement, right? There may be some contexts where it seems like sins can disappear without that first step of atonement. So that's, um, right, that's, they'll talk about this here, right? The second step in guilt removal process falls to the victim. Meaning, uh, when the wrongdoer makes atonement, they offer something to the victim. The victim forgives the wrongdoer by accepting the apology, reparation, or penance. And they, they sort of undertake that they won't treat you like the originator of the act, right? They say it's all right, they smile or whatnot. Um, right, and that's God, but there's two stages here, right? There's two pieces here. It eliminates the wrongdoer's guilt and it commits the forgiver to treat the wrongdoer in a certain way, right? So you're both, you're both uh, removing this, the, the guilt that, that this party has towards you and you're committing not to, uh, not to act in certain ways. Now, uh, Eleanor Stump, another, another famous philosopher argues against this account um, for two reasons. Number one, she argues it's mistaken to think that forgiveness requires the wrongdoer to make amends if forgiveness is to be morally appropriate. Meaning, why, why do you assume that you need to first apologize before getting forgiven? Why can't it be? Sometimes, maybe, the person can forgive without you apologizing. Why is that impossible? That's one, one place where she disagrees, right? You can see the logic on, on, the, on her side. And then the other, other argument is that in many cases, cases, repentance, reparation, and penance, and forgiveness are not sufficient for removal of guilt. Someone might say, you know, let's say, I don't know, you, right, oh, this comes up in the news sometimes, right? There's like a mass shooting, and then some of the relatives of the deceased say, we forgive, you know, we forgive you for what you did, right? And um, right on the one hand, it's like inspiring to see people with such a capacity to forgive, 
And on the other hand, you can ask, as Stump is asking now, does that really work, right? I mean, maybe the relatives are not the same as the actual person. Let's say someone gets injured or many, you know, a group of people get injured, uh, you know, and are, let's say, unable to, to function the way they could previously. And then they say, you know what? We forgive you. We're all, we all forgive you. Does that mean that, that what the person did is now totally atoned for? Is There's no more guilt? They don't need to feel bad about what they did because the five people that they paralyzed all said, we forgive you. It's that simple. Maybe not, right? Maybe forgiveness doesn't get you all the way there um, to, uh, to fully solve the problem, to fully fix that debt. Maybe there's just guilt is just something separate uh, that, that, needs to be dealt, that needs to be dealt with. Um, and now, you know, a, a third part of the critique is maybe it's wrong to think that forgiveness is tied to guilt at all. Because often, and I just gave an example of this, people other than the victim can blame a wrongdoer or at least judge them, right? Meaning, let's say in, in, uh, in most court systems, if someone murders someone else or injures someone else, the plaintiff in that case is not the injured party, the plaintiff is the state. Right? The state says, we're gonna, put, we're gonna send you to jail for what you did. Well, why is it up to the state? They weren't the wrong party, there's some third party. But the point is guilt, you can evaluate, you can determine guilt as a third party. What you can't do is forgive as a third party, arguably. Um, so that's, that's a reason to think, uh, says uh, Eleanor Stump, that forgiveness is not the same as just giving up a moral debt. Um, fine. So we'll move on from this. Right, and uh, right, they, they, they offer like a slightly, like a, a smaller, a more limited version of this, which is when God forgives us, God does that by giving up his divine blaming stance, no longer holds this against us, right? At least that's maybe, uh, and, and that like has some normative impact. I mean, the way that we act relative to God after being forgiven uh, will, be, will be different. So again, this is the account of the moral debt uh, that, uh, that Wormke puts forward, that you know, previous scholars put forward and he, he summarizes. And um, so I thought this was interesting in, in a sense, uh, in, in, light of, uh, in light of this Gemara in Yoma. So the Gemara is a machlokas here. The main opinion says that a sin you did previous years, that you did chuba for, presumably, you should not say vidui for. You should not confess, right? If you say three years ago, you, I don't know, you, uh, you went on a, a uh, robbery spree, you robbed a bunch of banks. You haven't done that since, you repented, you felt really bad, you gave back all the money, you haven't robbed a bank in the past three years, and then you get up on Yom Kippur and you say, you know, Hashem, please forgive me for having robbed these banks. You should not do that. You absolutely should not do that. That's the first view. It's even better to do it. My sins are always before me. That's a great thing. You should always, uh, you know, uh, do say vidui, confess your previous sins, even ones you've already confessed and done shuva for. So I wonder, maybe part of the question here is the nature of atonement and forgiveness. Meaning, meaning, let's assume, let's assume that forgiveness is this idea of uh, undoing a moral debt. Right? I sin against God. I owe God a moral debt. Then God forgives me. If I do shuva, I do things right. I get forgiven. And so what does it mean when I'm forgiven? It means that this is over, right? The, that it's been resolved. And maybe to then go ahead and still say vidui on it and say, oh, I'm so sorry for what I did. 
actually, and some of the some of the Mefarshim say this, is actually undermining your trust in, or you're undermining that that forgiveness itself, right? Like think of the parallel example, right? If you um, let's say you slip and you bang into someone and you you hurt them a little bit and you say I'm sorry and they say oh don't worry about it it's okay I forgive you and then every time you see them you know you see them every few days every time you say oh I'm so sorry if I slipped and, and banged into you the other day you keep doing that first of all it's really awkward that's just generally true but but the more significantly it undermines they said they forgive you who are you to keep saying oh I'm so sorry oh I'm so sorry they already said they forgive you. Maybe, maybe sometimes people don't really mean it, but if they actually meant it, it would be improper for you to keep saying, I'm sorry. Same thing here. That's what this Gemara is about. If God actually forgave you for your sin, got rid of that moral debt, it would be wrong for you to keep coming back and apologizing. Um, fine, I thought that was an interesting parallel. And now let's look at a few other examples, and we've seen these previous weeks, where, uh, where God forgiving sin really fits well with a debt conception of, of sin, right? We saw this uh, our, uh, from the, the work by uh, Gary Anderson, our, our previous meeting, all these different cases, a famous one, her sin has been paid for, they took double, right? They paid double for the sin. Uh, this is not a case of forgiveness. This is a case of punishment, but uh, very parallel uh, would be that there's a sin, right? Sin incurs a debt and that debt is resolved one way or the other uh, in, you know, in like a monetary way, but not actually monetary, but in a quantitative way by, by punishment, that's one case, or through forgiveness. So Gary Anderson in his book mentions, um, right, that a uh, person is chaya, is obligated when they have to repay a debt, the chov, um, and uh, the opposite of that is, the opposite of chov, the opposite of debt is chus, credit, but credit can also be a religious good deed, right? So this is a, a debt conception of sin and uh, and uh, religious merit. Um, and right, and, and Anderson argues how the term used for sin and what's the, the, what one owes after having sinned, the term chov or debt becomes the main term in the second temple period. And there's a shift from saying no se avon, that God lifts the burden of sin. Instead, we talk about kabel uh, chova, God assumes a debt or forgives a debt. Uh, and that shift happens. That's important for our purposes. And of course, as we discussed, this uh, the term mechila means exactly that. Limchol means to forgive a debt, not a biblical word. It's a word that emerges in the second temple period, means to forgive a debt. And here, it only will rain when all of Israel's sins are forgiven. But again, forgiven in a monetary sense. If, you, if, if Israel has too many sins, they owe a debt to God, God won't make it rain, literally. Right? And if you resolve those sins, then you can get the good stuff. Then you can get rain from God. So this is, again, just a handful of examples, but um, there are whole chapters in, in Anderson's book where he makes this point in great detail. Uh, and that significant conception of what sin is, sin as a debt that needs to be fixed by uh, getting credits or undoing the debt or being forgiven the debt, uh, that, that model is very extensive in the second temple period and in Chazal as well. Those are the four models that Wormke puts forward. I want to introduce two other models that he doesn't. One um, uh, suggested not quite a theory of forgiveness, but it sort of gets around, it, it may or may not be forgiveness, but it gets around some of the problems by uh, Sam Liebens, who's taught at Trish in the past, and uh, Ty Goldschmidt. And then another one 
um, based on some of the early sources. And we don't have a ton of time for this, so we're going to try to do this quickly. But if anyone has any quick questions before we do that, um, the floor is open for five seconds. And if you're on Facebook Live and you also have a question, feel free to come. Feel free to comment. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Well, if there are any, good. But uh, if not, let's move forward. So they they have this very interesting idea, um, and the argument is, and this there's different versions of this, but at least one version is that God will one day change the past by eliminating evil from it, meaning God will erase or otherwise modify previous acts of sin that people committed. And this is a kind of response to the problem of evil. There's less personal responsibility uh, for sin by the sinner or, or maybe even less evil in the world overall, what they call the, right? And then there's another theory, the agent substitution theory, that someone swaps you out. So the sin that you think you did wasn't really you. And they draw on, they draw on this source from Rav Tzadok, which itself is drawing on many Gemaras. He says, similar Chuba Gemura, right? A sign of, of complete tshuva, kishe'eno zoher klal Don't remember the sin you did. Remind the sinner of their sin. So it's a good sign if you did full tshuva that you won't remember your sin. Hashem doesn't mention the sin that the person did and they won't remember it. Why? Right? Your power comes from God. Your thought comes from God. This and your memory comes from God. It's a theory of how of human cognition that it's from divine overflow. If God doesn't want you to remember it, you won't remember it. Not only that, God says that God doesn't remember the sins. So just this collective amnesia. Everyone forgets the sins that you did from Amruzal uh, if God doesn't think of it, people won't think of it either. So um, fine, even if you don't get there yet, um, you're, not, you're not quite there, but you're always moving towards that. So somehow the ultimate tshuva is not remembering, not having your sin be remembered by anyone, the sinner or God or anything. And so, uh, so uh, Levis and Goldschmidt argue that that's because the sin itself has been erased. God can erase evil events without leaving a trace of evil. The event might leave a mark, but not an evil one. They get into some complicated uh, philosophy of time that we're not going to get into in all details. But uh, the idea is God is omniscient. God knows everything at every time. God can't forget anything. And yet, because these things never really happened, God erased the past, um, God can therefore forget these things as well. They know that this is an example that values God's mercy over God's justice, right? Meaning if you were, God were focused on justice to the greatest extent, it wouldn't make sense to erase something. But if there's a case of mercy, having mercy on the sinner, you might, you might uh, rewrite history or erase history to, uh, to do that. So there's different ways they get into these, this like funky metaphysics. God could erase past sins, eliminating entire scenes from history, destroying the parts of space-time where they take place. That's one possibility. Alternatively, the sins are in place, but they're no longer performed by the sinner. So someone else was doing what you did, right? The sinful temporal part, the part of you in time that sinned, is amputated from the sinner. Um, okay, that's, that's interesting. 
and um, right, and then they give other examples of uh, right who was doing the sin. Maybe right, Gittel apparently sinned, and then God rewrites that. Who was doing the sin for that period of time? Some Gittel-like thing that hyper was, meaning in the previous past, was a temporal part of Gittel, but which isn't a temporal part of her hyper anymore. Okay, again, some technical terms here. The point is, um, by rewriting history, the, the person who looked like and thought they were Gittel, who was doing this act, whatever, robbing banks, for that period of time, history is rewritten so that, such that it wasn't them at all. And then they say there's three candidates who it might be, who they could be swapped out of, and instead doing it, either God, which I thought was very unusual, or an evil person. Um, and they had an interesting example. They said, let's say maybe the point of the Seir Mishtaleach, right, the scapegoat that takes on all our sins, maybe at some level, uh, what that does is it goes back in time and metaphysically, the person who was doing the sin is actually this scapegoat, is actually this Seir Azazel. And especially they quoted a medrash that associates Seir Azazel with Esav, which is also Ish Sa'ir, he's hairy or goat-like. Um, so maybe uh, maybe it's like Esav's doing it. Esav, you know, was seen as the uh, great foil to the Jewish people and so and Russia. So he's the one doing it for you. Okay. And then a third option, that an entity that isn't a person, right? It looks like it's a person going through the motions of the sin, but Let's say you do tshuva, God rewrites history. You're not a person anymore. You're this, you know, you're a golem. You look like a person, but you're not actually a person. They also, uh, interesting reading into the Ramban, we're not gonna read this inside, but the Ramban says that you do smicha, you put your hands on the animal. It's partially, it's saying that, uh, you know, your body, like just like this animal is gonna get destroyed through, through the carbon, it's like you getting destroyed, which might be understood in multiple different ways, but they read it as fitting with their theory. One of the things that works very well for their theory is the problem of how can God forgive something or how can God change God's mind, right? First, God, God thought it was bad what you did. Now God, now God decides it's not bad anymore. How can God change God's mind? Well, they avoid that problem entirely because it's not that God changed God's mind. It's that what happened changed. Originally, you sinned. Then you did tshuva, let's say. God forgives you. And by forgiving you, God erases the past. So it's not that God changed God's mind, it's that the world itself is different. Now, why did God do that? Is that okay for God to do that? That's a whole other question that they did discuss that we saw a little piece of that discussion. But um, yeah, but that's, that's their interesting model that uh, maybe forgiveness isn't about God changing anything in God's mind. It's all about changing what happened in the world, rewriting history, and then sort of, you know, God's not, maybe God's not forgiving in any literal sense, but it's the same you know, God originally held this belief, this attitude towards you, or you had this punishment or whatever your model is, it was in place. And then God rewrites history. And now there no longer is that, uh, you know, uh, emotion or attitude or punishment coming to you from God. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And now, where did I put that? Yeah. So, well, this should go, okay, these next sources we'll get to in a bit. We get into the sixth model now, which I call removing tokens of sin. And there's three different versions of it. But these, this will harken back to some sources that we saw previously about the, the, what, what we called previously a metaphor or the, some of the metaphysics of sin that it leads to either these stains, right? Nichtam abonech lefanai, your sin is ingrained or is colored before me. That's what a sin is. And then 
Um, then you say, Herb, cleanse me from my sin, the person asks, right? Because when you do when you do tshuva and when you're forgiven, your sin is cleansed. And uh, as Milgram noted, the uh, atoner expiate is kiper, but that's a synonym of macha or hesir. Macha hesir means to wipe or remove, right? To clean, to, to wash, to purge, to take out the stain. So that's one thing we've seen where it sounds like a, a sin is a stain, or maybe it's a burden, right? Nasavon, carrying the sin, like it's a burden on your back. Aaron carries the sin of the holy. Um, and um, right, and we saw this in, in Anderson as well, to carry a burden. Um, or maybe the best example on Yom Kippur, the Sir Azazel, doesn't actually say that you the goat is standing in for you. It says you're putting your sins on the goat. And then it sends it away. It gets rid of that burden of sin that you had. So that's a second version of it, of uh, right, if we if we talk about uh, if we talk about uh, removing tokens of sin, so you can remove a stain, you can remove a burden, and then you can sometimes bury the sin. Right, it's not not quite getting rid of it; it's somehow covering it over. As we said, you throw away uh, into the depths and uh, cover over the sins with water, so you won't see it anymore. Now, these are three different models or three different versions of removing tokens of sin. But why is this, how does, what does that have to do with forgiveness? So I think, and, and I, well, let's first look at some other, other psukim here that, that, will, that will lead us to the place. Um, so you have these psukim that say, these are temes b'nei you should warn or remove or guard whatever Israel from their impurity, v'loye they wouldn't die, v'tame amis mishkani asher v'socham, right? If they defile my mishkan, that would be very bad and they would die, they would get punished for having defiled my mishkan with their impurity. Or um, another case, this case is uh, you sacrifice your children to Molech and God will be very upset. He cuts him off um, because he sent this kid to Molech. Um, what does it do when you send your kid to Molech? It defiles the mikdash. Hashem says it defiles my mikdash and it defiles my holy name. Now that's weird because you sent you sacrifice a kid to Molech 50 miles north of Yerushalayim. What does that have to do with the base of Mikdash? And yet that's what that's what God says. And another example, Parakirches talks about uh, the various sexual improprieties that were practiced by the people of Egypt and Canaan and were prohibited to the Jews, like uh, bestiality, example, for example, here. Um, and it says, Altitamu don't defile yourselves with all of these. All the nations that I'm sending away uh, from Egypt and Canaan, they, they all sinned in this way. And what happened? The land became defiled, became impure. I set its sins against it. The land spat out its inhabitants. And you should make sure to follow these laws so you won't get spat out by the land. So what's going on here? I think what, what's, what we have here, reading these psukim, right? Sin leads to defilement of the land and or the temple, and then to people dying or being cut off or being kicked out of the land, right? So we, we saw uh, previously, we saw Milgram's uh, sort of summary and presentation of this, um, which he called the picture of Dorian Gray, right? That the way, the way uh, he understood it, and this seems compelling in the sources, when a person sins, it causes the different holy things, the land of Israel, which is holy, 
the temple, which is all, especially the, the bigger the sin, the more internal part of the temple that gets defiled. And at some point, God can't stand this defilement and just kicks people out of the land. And I think the way of understanding this, it's not just a metaphor. I think there's a real metaphysics here. And I think the metaphysics here is, uh, it's what we call tokens of sin, or maybe, I'm not sure if token is the right word, but I think it works for now, right? When you sin, the sin is represented by this stain. It's not a physical stain. It's a metaphysical stain. It's somehow this, this uh, what, what Milgram calls a miasma, this yuckiness that, that sort of establishes itself in the base of Iqdash or in the land of Israel. And I think this, this, there's some in, intuitiveness to this as well, right? Like if someone wrongs you, or let's say someone, I don't know, uh, let's say um, you're, you're, uh, you have a Game Boy, you're playing on Game Boy or whatever, or PlayStation, whatever, you know, uh, Xbox, whatever the latest one is, and you're, you know, you're playing with your friends and then your friend cheats and, and you lose and you're very upset about that. Now, it could be that your resentment will manifest itself in the token of that game system, right? You might say, every time I see that game system, I, you know, I feel this yuckiness. I feel something, I feel something wrong about that event that happened. I think this would be a case where, where that item is a sort of token of the fact that you were wronged by the other person. And maybe that, that you know, that's that like, uh, may help us get into the uh, biblical mindset here, maybe that's the same thing that happens when people sin, right? When people sin, it, it, it creates this miasma, this yuckiness in God's own house, right? I was wrong in, right? If you sin outside of Eretz Israel, it's not clear that it works in the same way. But definitely if you sin in the land of Israel, that makes God, who's at home, so to speak, in the land of Israel, in the temple, feel, feels ill at ease at home. There's a stain on the wall uh, because of what you did. And the part of the process of forgiveness is getting, cleansing that, that, uh, that mess, getting rid of that stain. And of course, that's how carbonos work, right? They, you, you uh, uh, at least, you know, on the standard theory, you put blood on the altar, you remove that stain somehow metaphysically, and then the house becomes clean again. Now, presumably that will correlate to one degree or another with the person actually feeling remorse and, uh, you know, uh, trying to undo their sin. Um, uh, but what actually makes it work is the metaphysics, is this yuckiness of the sin, this token of the sin being removed. And it can be removed by the stain being cleansed. Sometimes it's removed by the sa'ir walking away the sins. The sins are piled on his back. It's a burden and it walks it away. Or maybe the sins are thrown underwater. But it's the idea that there's this thing that's facing God and is offensive to God that represents the wronging of God that, that took place. So that's, I think, that I think is the, the theory that comes out most from biblical literature. Again, not, not Chazal as much, but if you just read the Psukim, it really sounds like this idea of removing tokens of sin is how, this, how it works. Um, I, don't, I don't think anyone suggested this as a philosophical approach. I, can, I think because the metaphysics are a little different than what we tend to think of, um, but that, that seems to be what the Psukim say. Uh, so I'm throwing that out there. So we had today six different models and uh, we all take questions in a moment. Um, and, uh, but it seems like there's six different models of how divine forgiveness might work. We'll just go backwards, uh, right? Removing the tokens of sin, whether the stains or, uh, uh, whether they're stains or whether they're, uh, burdens, the previous approach, that's really about God rewriting history. Um, and then the four approaches that we saw 
from uh, Wormke, an economic model, right? This idea of forgiving debt, um, idea of reconciliation, the most interpersonal of the models, and the idea of, of uh, remitting punishment, God not deciding not to punishment, punish. And then uh, finally, the first one we saw, an emotional model, which, uh, you know, all of these had some complications, but, uh, um, you know, each of them has something to speak for them, even, including from a Jewish perspective. There are definitely Jewish sources that at least indicate in the direction of all of them. And now we'll do our vote. Um, so everyone put in the chat, um, you know, models one, two, three, four, five, or six. Again, one being emotion, two being remitting punishment, three being reconciliation, four being forgiving debt, five being this uh, radical rewriting of history, and six being the token model. Let's see what people have to say, and then we'll take some questions. Sorry, we're a bit over, but you know, there's a lot, a lot to do, and uh, that's what happens. Um, so everyone, everyone, please vote. Um, okay, we got a most compelling or most traditionally Jewish. Either one, you can you can choose which of those to answer. Um, if you're following on Facebook Live, you can also vote. Oh wow, people are voting too. That also works. That also works. Um, okay, great. It looks like yeah, uh, looks like six is trending. Four is doing all right. Also, um, the early theories are not no one no love for those. I don't know why, but uh, um, good. Okay, everyone else, feel free to keep voting. Any other choices? The choices are one through six. I mean, if you have another theory, please like uh, let us know. I'm happy to learn. Um, let's see. Questions. Ozzy asks, "It's one thing to remove a stain; it's another to transform the stain into a mitzvah." Okay, so there's actually an interesting source. There's a Reish Lakish at the end of Yoma says that. Um, uh, right, uh, that your intentional sins can even become positive things. And how do you understand that? So I think that actually works well on the Laban's Goldschmidt model, that God can somehow transform the past, like with some metaphysics. Um, I think the standard view is not to take that super literally and have it more be that like it helps you in your own personal growth, but that act maybe, maybe can be rendered to be nothing, but it's hard to say that act is rendered positive in a literal sense. Um, but again, if you wanted to take it literally, that would that would support the Liebens, uh, Liebens Goldschmidt approach. But yeah, great question, Ozzy. Uh, any other question? Oh, look, uh, Samson says, regarding the erasing the past, it's interesting comparison with the Zechronos on Rosh Hashanah Mosav, where God is remembering, uh, the rem God's remembering is significant because he won't forget the fact that we're worthy of being saved. Uh, and that lives should be preserved. Whereas many of the thinkers in five seem to think that if God remembers us, it means he won't forget our sins and will definitely be punished. So I think, uh, Sam, what you're raising is this idea of a selective memory, right? Meaning, I think if you're taking a philosophical account of God, so God remembers everything because, uh, you know, God's perfect. He can't, can't not remember. Um, and that's why some of the, the tricks in that approach were to say, well, it's, there's nothing to remember because it was taken away. So it's not that God forgot. It doesn't tell you anything about God. It just tells you about the world. Uh, whereas you're saying maybe Zachronos has this selective memory. Now, the question would be how does selective memory work, right? Um, you know, uh, like uh, if you have selective hearing, um, does that mean you're actually not hearing the other thing or you don't want to hear it? Or like how exactly do you understand that? So how does selective memory work? That would be a very interesting project to try to think about that. Presumably, it doesn't mean that God actually forgets some things and not others. Um, so you might you might fit that into the to model five, as you said, right? That God erases certain things, or you again might say it's not literal, meaning it means God will give undue weight 
to positive things and will minimize negative things. That would be the other way of understanding it. But yeah, definitely an interesting uh, piece to raise here. Um, okay, Ozzy says, if you repent, you become a different person. This is not transforming the past or rewriting the past. I agree. I agree. The, the straightforward reading of Reish Lakish, if you will, the literal reading of Reish Lakish involves some pretty weird metaphysics, which again, um, I think actually, I'm trying to remember, I don't think it was, a, maybe it wasn't a, a Drisha class that uh, Sam Levens gave a sheer, maybe it was, gave a sheer about actually rewriting the past and that Gemara about uh, sins becoming zchuyos. I think the, the simpler, oh, okay, John was there, of course. Uh, I think the simpler reading is to say, uh, is to say, that uh, it's not literal. It means it's like Nazikizchuyos. It's like Zchuyos in the sense that you grew, you gained from the fact that you sinned and now you repented for it. You're a better person. Having had the experiences of spiritual failure, you're now better poised uh, for spiritual growth. I think mean, that's the simpler, it's less literal, but it is uh, simpler conceptually. Um, it's 9.09. So if someone has a final question, we do that very quickly. Otherwise, I think um, we will have to. Uh, Take this series to its close. Gamar Tov, everyone. Feel free, as always, to uh, shoot me emails if you have further questions. And uh, pleasure learning with you and looking forward to uh, learning more in the future. Thank you, Rabbi Zikir, for a great class. And thank you to everyone who's joined us throughout the series today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Um, we're going to continue our fall classes coming up on over Cholamuet Sukkot on September 26th. Uh, at 10 a.m. with Meira Wolkenfeld teaching a, teaching a class on a Bavli story about a sukkah, a savta, and misogyny. Um, you can find out more information on this class as well as all of our upcoming fall programming on our website at drisha.org slash classes. We, will, we hope to get a full slate of fall programming up soon, including including topics including topics on Shemitah and a, and a, and a Gemara class for middle school girls. Thank you to every thank you again well, to everyone. Everyone and Gmartov.